Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Here's what's coming up on this edition. First up, you'll meet someone who has survived a number of health challenges and almost lost her life after being run over by a large truck. She has experienced God's faithfulness and has competed in a number of athletic events. Colleen Kelly Alexander is coming up. Then the latest book of biblical fiction from Misu Andrews is based on a relationship between the prophet Isaiah and his daughter, who, according to Jewish tradition, married a powerful king. Find out more ahead. Plus, it's Nancy C. Anderson attempting to steer married couples away from infidelity and divorce, helping them to stay away from the notion that the grass is greener somewhere else. And on this edition of The Intersection, some analysis from David Curry of Open Doors USA, providing information on the latest World Watch List comprised of the countries who are the leading persecutors of Christians. Then from Concerned Women for America, Penny Young Nance gives some commentary about matters of sexual harassment and assault, integrating a Christian worldview perspective. Finally, there has been quite a bit of news regarding the opioid crisis in America, which includes prescription drugs and heroin. Rick Van Warner walked with his son through opioid addiction and shares insight about his experience and how his faith was a component in the overall journey. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Colleen Kelly Alexander has survived brain surgery, a bout with lupus, and trauma resulting from being run over by a truck. She has a sense of God's faithfulness and a desire to recognize those who have stood with her. She's written a book called Gratitude in Motion, a true story of hope, determination, and the everyday heroes around us. Here now is Colleen Alexander. I literally was dying on the road. Um, I remember the entire trauma. I think because I was an EMT years ago, I um, almost put myself into like a triage mode and um, flatlined within minutes of getting to the to the hospital at Yale and uh, continued to just, um, I was under the first time as far as uh, I had, I died for a little over 20 minutes. They were doing CPR and um, just trying to flush me with blood and different products that my body needed because my body literally had bled out. So that's the reason why my heart wasn't able to beat. And as quickly as they'd get blood products into me, I would just bleed out again because um, the pelvis, the pelvic bone holds all those organs and is such a huge blood center for the body. And so when that's literally broken in half, um, the body has a really hard time sustaining uh, the blood. So I had cardiac arrest multiple times. The first time was over 20 minutes of CPR and they got me back and then I just continued coding um, for about 72 hours. And um, I remained in a coma for almost a month and then um, was able to finally start learning how to take some breaths on my own and get off the machines and went to a rehab hospital and um, you know, the fight really started um, as I began understanding the severity of what happened. And, and at the same time, I began understanding the beauty of so many people that were a part of the journey of my survival. Um, it was very, very powerful. So, Well, we're going to be talking about your life following that occurrence, but I did want you to 
to share just a bit about how your your faith, your relationship with God has has helped you and sustained you during this this season, if you will, after the accident? Yeah, um, I'm not sure how I would have been able to handle any of this without um, a foundation in God. And certainly, initially, and there are even times today that I question, and I think that, you know, with with anybody who's a Christian, it's okay to question God's will sometimes. Um, but I questioned, you know, why did this happen? Why am I in such severe pain? And then I questioned, why did I live? Um, and I kept coming back to, and my husband would say to me, you know, God knew that you were strong enough to go through this. And certainly by no means does God ever want any of us to, to hurt or be in pain or to punish us. But I believe wholeheartedly, and my husband had said to me, you know, God used this situation because he knew you were strong enough to come back. He knew you were strong enough to be a voice and be a light. Um, and so we we had begun praying together when we very first reunited because we were high school sweethearts and we, we knew we had something really special. And Sean said to me, um, God has us together for something big. And I don't know what it is, but it's big. And I, you know, we used to giggle about it, like, because um, Quite often, if you pray for God to do His will in your life, you better be careful. You better um, be ready. And so we used to pray that God would just do His will in our lives. And through this, we've seen so much beauty through um, just answered prayer and through grace. And um, it has been at times like a living horror movie um, of what you know, I've been through, my body's been through, and I've had over 30 surgeries, and um, and with that, I've met, you know, I've had over 78 units of blood, so I learned about the fact that, you know, there's just countless people who selflessly roll up their sleeves and donate blood, and there's um, just the, the human family and chain connected um, is so, so, so beautiful, and I have so much thankfulness in that, and I'm not where I I thought I'd be. Colleen Kelly-Alexander here on The Intersection. You can find out more by visiting the website, ColleenKellyAlexander.com. Misu Andrews visited with me recently. She shared about some of the content of the biblical fiction book she's written entitled Isaiah's Daughter, a novel of prophets and kings, including the overall story and themes in it. Central character, obviously the prophet Isaiah, as well as his daughter Hephzibah, and according to Jewish tradition, she married King Hezekiah. Here now, from our conversation, historical fiction writer Misu Andrews. We think about Isaiah, we know the name Isaiah. What we may not know, and as you were sharing with me earlier, this is something that, according to Jewish stories, has been handed down, is that Isaiah had a daughter by the name of Hephzibah. Now, that is a name that we find in the Scriptures, and I know it's in Isaiah, in, in the book of Isaiah, as well as in the book of Second Kings. So we see that right. there was, that you've got a name, Hephzibah, but you actually have a person named Hephzibah that is uh-huh. found in the Scriptures. And there also, we see that Hephzibah, according to Second Kings 21.1, had a son by the name of Manasseh. 
So Manasseh right. being the son of King Hezekiah. So apparently Hezekiah and Hephzibah were uh, were married. So you yeah. can you can make the you can make the conclusion based on your studies that Isaiah had a daughter that married one of the kings of Israel. Yeah. Yeah, that's not too much of a leap, is it? So so how about that for a son-in-law, right? That's... You you marry your daughter to the king and and scripture tells us that Hezekiah was the most righteous king of Judah. And then you look at Manasseh, and he was the most wicked king of Judah. And that intrigued me, Bob, because I'm, I'm the mother of two adult girls. And, you know, when my girls were going through a difficult period in their lives, and I'm, I'm on my knees for them every day. Uh, and, and to think about a wicked son who, I mean, basically Manasseh tore down everything that King Hezekiah had rebuilt and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I can't imagine what that poor woman went through to watch her Mm. son making such destructive decisions. And so my heart just really, really went out to this to this woman um, who who was married to the most righteous king and then who was mother to the most wicked king. So I, I have loved this character for years. Jewish tradition does not tell us about Hesaba's childhood. Uh, but it, it does tell us that in in Isaiah 62.4, it, it says her name will go from desolate or desolation to Hesaba, the Lord's delight. And so Ishma, the name that she starts out with as a five-year-old, is that desolation. And I just thought, you know, as a prophet's daughter, what could it be desolation? I, I, that's more than just a teenager having a hard day. So I actually, in the story, because I have the the ability to do fiction, this is not truth that I'm writing, this is fiction, I actually have her as a five-year-old orphan that uh, is named Ishma, and Ishma actually in Hebrew means desolation. And so hmm. Isaiah ends up adopting her and bringing her into a royal um, lineage through adoption. And, and so that's how she becomes Hephzibah. He actually is able to name her Delight of the Lord because he adopts her, um, which is a, was on purpose that I did that because, you know, we're adopted when we become children of the king, when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so um, I wanted to have that, that symbolism in the book um, because I, I just love that. I love that we're adopted, and we all get to be brought into the royal lineage. Hmm. And so we think about that name as it's expressed in Isaiah chapter 62, about this, in, in this case, according to the prophet, Jerusalem, the people of God, actually being desolate and brought into a relationship with himself. Yeah. And so according to the story that you tell in Isaiah's daughter, you see that Isaiah would have brought Hephzibah and called her by by a name. Now, how do you bring her and Hezekiah together? Well, both of them have, as children, Hezekiah's uh, just a little bit older than she is, but both of them as children um, experienced some very traumatic things. Hephzibah as an orphan experienced, she watched her, her parents' death. Um, Hezekiah watches his brother being sacrificed by his father, King Ahab, in in a pagan fire. 
And and so they are both very traumatized in their own ways. Misu Andrews here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website misu, M-E-S-U, andrews.com. Writer Nancy C. Anderson is author of the book Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow a Fair-Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. In a recent conversation with me, she offered some practical steps for reconciling a marriage in crisis and taking preventive steps to avoid marital trouble, including infidelity. Here now is Nancy C. Anderson. In the chapter called Affair Repair, it could be applied actually to any major problem that you have in your marriage. And that is first you need to reveal, and that is to come clean. Express your feelings about your hurts, your disappointments, your anger, whatever it is. Have a conversation about it. And then repent. Whatever is your part of that discontent or anger or distance, you can't control the other person, but you can always repent and change the parts of you that have contributed to it. And then reconcile. If you can come up with a plan to meet the needs of both people as much as possible, and then that's when you start to rebuild. And that's where church attendance, perhaps counseling, um, mentor couples really come in. And then you resolve. You say, we now are determined that this is our life together, and we are going to figure it out. You make a statement to each other. And then renew, which can go beyond the statement, and that is a renewal of your vows in one way or another. Recently, we talked to a couple who's going to be baptized together. They were baptized separately, you know, previously, but they're going to be baptized together, symbolizing the new birth of their marriage. And then the next one is rejoice, which is to Mm. celebrate how far you've come. So those are the steps that we take people through when they're in a crisis or just in a big slump to pull them out. And of course, the Lord is involved in each step. The ideal situation and really what marriages, those in marriages should strive for is really to prevent these things from entering in. So you talk about these protective hedges. There are six of them that you outline in the book, and I wanted to ask you to summarize those, if you would, for us. Sure. And yes, that's the best thing. We we love to talk to couples who are really in a good marriage and say, if you put these hedges around your heart and around your behavior, you will prevent the big problems mm. from coming in, the wolf from jumping over the fence or from you wandering over the fence. And the the concept is hedges, which is a a boundary around your marriage. And it's to keep the good things in and the bad things out. And it does spell out the word hedges. The first one is hearing, which is communicating, but with patience, with understanding, with deep conversations. Many couples just talk about chores and weather and kids, and they don't really know the longings of each other's hearts and the heartbreaks they've had over the years. Then encouraging, which is really helping each other. And we talk about physical help, mental help, and spiritual help, all being very important so that the other person in the relationship feels cared for by the other. Then dating, which is the keeping it fresh and fun part. And we talk about different types of dates you can go on, adventurous dates, um, thematic dates, surprising dates. We have a lot of ideas about dating. 
and then guarding, which is agreeing on your boundaries and enforcing them. And that includes workplace boundaries, which I did not have, uh, boundaries at home regarding your computer, your phone, any people that may be visiting or uh, living with you, nannies, babysitters, that kind of thing, hobbies, and even at church. What are my boundaries at church? And then educating, which is becoming an expert on what does your mate need? Because everybody's different. We learn the differences between men and women, introvert, extrovert, optimist, pessimist. I have to understand my husband. I want to get a PhD in him and he and me. And the last one is satisfying, which is putting all those other steps into practice. And that is to meet the needs of the other. We're told in scriptures to prefer one another. And if you apply that to your marriage, if I choose you and you choose me, then we together are healthy and strong. And then the, the goal is to be like Isaiah 58:11, which says, you shall be like a well-watered garden. And that's our goal for marriages is to meet all of the needs of the other as much as possible. And we know there's crises and there's landmines coming up in the journey that you don't see. But if you Mm. have these boundaries and you've talked about them and you've established them and the Lord is in the center, then you can survive a lot of things. Nancy C. Anderson here on The Intersection. Her website address is nancycanderson.com. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more by visiting the website meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. Also, through that homepage, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can also access the Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio app. Learn more through the website faithradio.org. Also, when you visit meetinghouseonline.info, you'll find a link to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. That website address is meetinghouseonline.info or you can access the homepage through faithradio.org. Go to the programming section. David Curry is president and CEO of Open Doors USA. Recently, he discussed with me the 2018 Open Doors World Watch List, identifying the nations who are the leading persecutors of Christians around the world. He discussed a variety of nations and developments. This is David Curry now. The purpose and the mission of Open Doors is to stand with persecuted Christians around the world. We started 60-plus years ago, smuggling Bibles into the Soviet Union, and today we continue to work in those places which are most difficult for faith. So you mentioned North Korea, but also the Middle East, other countries. Any way that we can help support Christians, that's what we want to do. And the World Watch list actually contains 50 countries, approximately 215 million Christians experiencing high, very high, or extreme persecution in those countries on the world watch list, correct? That's right. What we do is we get in there. This is a grassroots study, so we're talking to Christians and officials there on the ground in each one of these countries, figuring out what's happening. We measure it based on violence, 
what what is it like for the the church what's the national life like all these different versions of oppression that we can measure and then we total that together and you get the world watch list it's trusted by the governments around the world governments complain that they're on it trust me i hear that regularly Governments use it to try to figure out what's happening because the State Department's research, uh, the Pew research, none of those get to the grassroots the way this does. So how many years has North Korea been the number one country on this list? But by my count, this is 17th year oh in a goodness. row. And what you have in North Korea, as we mentioned, only by a point uh, to Afghanistan, but still number one. And that is because you have a leader who has a system which regards him as God. He acts and thinks like he's God, but he acts like an animal. Mm. He devours his own people. And Christians particularly, it's difficult for everybody in North Korea, as most people who read the headlines would know. But Christians are considered the number one enemy of the state. So they're the last to get food. They're the last to get rations. They're moved out. Even if your grandfather was a Christian, you're moved out into the into the ghettos, uh, into the uh, outer regions of the, of the country. Sixty thousand Christians in labor camps, where most of them will spend most of their life, if not die, there. So North Korea is particularly heinous in the way it does it. Let me give you even more day-to-day picture of it. If you're a Christian, they have neighborhood watches there, and they will give your neighbors rations if you can show, if they will show that you have a Bible, if they hear you talking about Jesus. Not even just neighbors spying on neighbors, but if your little children find out that you have a Bible, they can be tricked at school into talking about it, and then that you will be hauled away. That's not unusual, and I'm talking about specific cases that we know about, uh, and it's tragic. So North Korea, very difficult. Number one, that the world watches us, and we need to be very thoughtful and prayerful about what's happening there. Having said that, I always like to remind people, especially people of faith, there are many, many Christians there in North Korea. Their faith is strong. These are amazing people, uh, and we want to love and support them. Mm. And North Korea in the number one position, and as you mentioned, just a point ahead of Afghanistan, North Korea with 94 points, Afghanistan with 93. Talk about the point system here. Well, the point system, as I said, in these various six different regions that we measure, what's it like in private life, family life, community life, national life, we rank each of them, and then we add them all together. So that's how you, you get those points. Afghanistan, the Taliban now controls half the country. The other half is is, is tribal, uh, broke up into other tribal areas. The government's weak. Everybody understands the instability there. But you have this extremist movement, which is strong, embedded there so deep. So very dangerous for for believers. There's not a big public movement. It's underground. It's a secret church, but it's growing. It's growing. I mean, it's there. So we got, we got to be thinking about them and praying for them. Uh, but look at the rest of the top 10, and you yep. see that it's Islamic oppression that's driving this. You've got countries like Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan, as we mentioned earlier. It just go through it. Iran, Iraq, they're all in that mix. And you begin to understand that Islamic oppression, Islamic extremism is is a force to be reckoned with yet, even though ISIS has retracted in territory. 
David Curry here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to opendoorsusa.org. Penny Young Nance is president and CEO of Concerned Women for America. She's also the author of the book Feisty and Feminine, A Rallying Cry for Conservative Women. Recently, she discussed matters relative to sexual harassment and sexual assault, integrating a Christian worldview perspective. From that conversation, this is Penny Young Nance. Let me first say that, you know, as much as people want to use the issue as a partisan club, that is absolutely the wrong approach because this is not about Republican or Democrat. It's about a heart issue. It's about sin. And so we need to step back and view it as such. You know, uh, you talked about my book. In my book, I wrote about the fact that, you know, as uh, as a younger woman, um, I was a victim of attempted rape on a Virginia running trail by a complete stranger. I've also experienced early in my career sexual harassment. I mean, it, it's a sad story, but it happens. And unfortunately, I think it happens more frequently than people were aware. I think that's what's so shocking about the whole Me Too movement. Um, I think people are feeling empowered to share their stories. But what we said at Concern Women for America is everyone deserves the opportunity to share their story. They should. Um, we have to deal with those with resp- responsibly. We need to look at them and understand that everyone deserves due process. Um, and we need to, above all, as Christians, care for the least of these and understand people are simple and that uh, predators prey on the weak. They don't prey on the strong. They prey on people who don't usually have recourse or have someone to help them. And so we as believers, as messy and ugly as it all is, have to be willing to open our ears, listen, and, and look for opportunities to minister in the middle of all this. As a woman, I would like to believe that women always are morally superior to men. But unfortunately, <laughs> we know that we're all sinners. And if we, you know, didn't understand, you know, our innocence is, is gone some because of issues like the Duke lacrosse case or because of Lena Dunham's book or because of the UVA um, false accusation uh, that Rolling Stone covered. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, people are simple. But what I would say is every, everyone deserves, again, the right to due process. Victims deserve the right to be heard. Let's use, uh, you know, common sense and let's really look into each case, case by case. And if there is, uh, you know, if, if we can see that there is a pattern, if, there, if there's evidence there, and usually there is, by the way. <laughs> but usually it's not just one person coming forward. Usually it's many. There has to be accountability. Um, people are talking about, oh, how do we train people? How do we do you know, more corporate training? I'm like, and I say, it's not about training. People who prey on the weak, they know they're doing wrong. It has to be about accountability. Um, we need to teach our young women, uh, you know, and, and this is not victim blaming. This is teaching your children how to keep yourself safe, how to make good decisions so that you're not uh, easily victimized. But, you know, and as a public policy organization, if I could just step back a little bit further, our goal is to seek justice. Um, we have been at the forefront in trying to urge um, Congress and urge states to clean up the backlog of rape kits. And that has to do with when someone is is sexually assaulted and they 
are able to go forward and submit to uh, go to go forward to law enforcement and submit to um, going to the to the hospital and going through the arduous, uh, you know, investigation and then collecting of DNA samples. Sometimes those samples sit on the shelf for years and have not been processed. And meanwhile, the victim does not get justice. And the perpetrator still out on the streets and able to hurt others. So there's some very basic things that could be done that are not being done. We also have said that there has to be transparency. In the case with Congress, where our tax money was used to settle um, cases of sexual harassment, we were using, basically covering up for predators. That's not helpful. We want to know who those people are so that the people have the right when they go to the polls to revoke their job. <laughs> and people, by the way, I believe the voters are very smart. They make they make good decisions, but they can't make good decisions if they don't have all the information. Some important and timely insight from Penny Young Nance here on The Intersection. The Concerned Women for America website is concernedwomen.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's the author of the book, On Pills and Needles, The Relentless Fight to Save My Son from Opioid Addiction. His name is Rick Van Warner, and he shared about some dynamics of the opioid crisis and what he experienced as a result of his son's opioid addiction. Here now, from that conversation, it's Rick Van Warner. It really started as a shock to us. Um, there weren't really any outward signs that that Tommy had a problem and around age 16 he just didn't come home from school one day on a Friday at first we thought maybe he'd gone to a a, a friend's house or or whatever but as the as as darkness fell we realized that that we really needed to get into action to find out exactly where he was and we found out what we found out was was terrifying and and uh he had run off with a friend to to use these drugs and and it took us several days before we found him but we did find him in time and get him into his first of many uh, detoxes and and rehabilitation attempts he initially became addicted to the pills and then later once the government got around to regulating and cracking down on pill mills and and stopping the flow the easy flow of of these prescription meds into the streets well it just shifted the folks like Tommy and many other people of all different age groups that had become addicted to oxycontin and other similar drugs that just pushed them into the streets where they started using heroin and and uh you know, street versions of the same drugs often cut with even more deadly chemicals. What was his his process of of trying to to get off these drugs? Well, it's extraordinarily difficult. the The use of opioids does cause rewiring of the brain, and it, to to put it in simple terms, a person who is addicted to these drugs that tries to stop the pain of maybe a flu times a hundred the the, the physical pain and the brain uh, just craving the release out of that pain that they're in from, from withdrawal leads them back to the drug. So it's an extraordinarily difficult problem to overcome when somebody, someone becomes addicted. So from a father's perspective, what were you walking through at this time? That was extraordinarily painful. It was a roller coaster. Uh, my wife and I had to 
you know, look out for the welfare of our other three children. And at a time when his problems were really, you know, pulling all the air out of the room and taking all the family's energy. So it was a time of chaos and, and painfulness and even at times questioning my faith and, and wondering why had God done this to our family. And, and, uh, you know, you, he was brought up in a, in a, in a middle-class, you know, Christian home where, where, you know, he was a seemingly very happy, normal kid. And the depths that this, that this took us to were unfathomable. Talk about your own faith journey as you talk about questioning your own faith. How did you see God actually work, even in the midst of this time of, of tremendous difficulty for you and your family? Well, I, I, I never did stop praying, and I prayed for, for Tommy to see the light, to, to you know, overcome this. For I prayed for the health of our family and our other children. Um, but I, over time, I came to understand that there was a purpose in here, that, that there was a reason that, that my family was going through this much pain and this much chaos over such a long period. It was very difficult to understand why everybody else seemed to get it, you know, or other seemingly it turned out that wasn't really true, but other people might get sober after three or four tries where our son just continued to go through this vicious cycle of sobriety relapse or detox relapse, and then recovery for a period of time, then back to another relapse every time something bad would happen in his life. And so I started to look at it differently. And I started to understand that the only thing, that was going to to help him survive and to keep him alive was the unconditional love and acceptance of his family. And that's somewhat counter to a lot of people talking about things like tough love, which is our approach we had earlier on in the early years of this, this situation. But as far as um, over, over, year, over the years, at a certain point, I realized that that I was put through this situation and my son was put through the situation uh, to help other people. And that, that really was, was God's purpose, I believe to this day. And that's really the reason I wrote the book is because he pretty clearly told me to. Rick Van Warner here on the intersection. Find out more through the website on pills and spell it out and needles.com. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. It is a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or go to faithradio.org and scroll over the programming section. You'll find a menu of items. You can click on The Meeting House. You'll find the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. Also, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can also find The Intersection podcast in the Faith Radio app. You can learn more when you visit faithradio.org. Also, when you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, the website address is meetinghouseonline.info or visit faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.